0: Uh, there's another one recently uh, a project called core js which is a maintainer living in russia this code base runs the entire web application on the internet netflix amazon google you know you name it everybody's using components of this this person is pleading on the internet saying i don't have financial help please help me he went to jail for 10 months or for an accident during which 10 months there was no updates on the code yet it's foundational to our internet ecosystem. Something is very wrong here, Paul. And we just need to make sure that the users and where Labs is focused is helping consumers of open source software do their part, which is understand what open source your developers are using today.
1: The Genealogy of Cybersecurity is a new kind of podcast. Here we'll interview notable entrepreneurs, startup advising CISOs, venture capitalists, and more. Our topic, the problems of cybersecurity, new attack surfaces, and innovation across the startup world. Welcome. I'm your cybersecurity analyst, Paul Shamo.
0: Hi, everyone. My name is Barman Badwar. I'm the founder and CEO of Endor Labs, uh, which is a startup focusing on open source software security and governance. Uh, Prior to this, I built two other startups, most recently a company called Redlock in the cloud security posture management space that was acquired by Palo Alto Networks, where I went on to create Prisma Cloud uh, and spent about three years uh, building and scaling that up.
1: Well, well first off, I do—I actually want to ask you about Red RedLight, but first off, I want to say congratulations for making Innovation Sandbox finalists a big deal.
0: Thank you so much. We're very excited. Uh, this is the third company that has got uh, the finalist title, and uh, it's always been an amazing platform. So uh, we're just thrilled and humbled to be back there, and uh, hopefully this time we can... Uh, Go all the way through and win the win the
1: title. I do want to ask you about Redlock because I've been interviewing founders for seven years and well over. I don't know if I'm I'm over hundred. I don't think I'm up to two hundred. And I continually bump into founders that came out of Redlock. And could you help me understand that? Like what what about Redlock was full made it full of so many entrepreneurial people?
0: You know, Paul um, well, Redlock had this. Just we had the most incredible team that we were able to put together to solve a very large problem around cloud security posture management. We built a great product that was very well received by our customers. And we just saw this tremendous trajectory of success, not just creating the category of cloud security posture management, but as you can now see, you know, there's a, there's a, just, it's one of the fastest growing categories still seven years later. You know, you see new entrants like Wiz and others coming in and challenging what was Redlock and is now Prisma Cloud. And I think the DNA of a lot of people there have, has this has had this entrepreneurial spirit, has had incredible learnings of going from zero to several hundred million ARR, uh, hyper growth. And uh, I, I think people are just excited to take their learnings from there and uh, uh, and find other ways to kind of solve other hard problems in bigger markets
1: just curious i've asked one more question about this because the redlock phenomena has fascinated me for some time Did, was there anything special about your recruiting that you found the kind of people that would go out and do those things
0: you know there was a couple of things about a culture which we were really aligned to and maybe one of those that was like i as, as a ceo of that company i was always looking to work myself out for jobs so when i was recruiting for leaders in other areas it was always looking for people that could kind of get up there and uh, be extremely successful in what they do and be very confident in the decisions they make in doing so, where you know they weren't looking for me to make every decision for them. So I think there was a part of that DNA that certainly helped. We also were not shy to find the most diverse experiences, uh, and we didn't hesitate to give people a first shot at a leadership role in the company. And so I think the big thing when I look back was autonomy, Like leaders had autonomy to make decisions, to fail fast, to learn and scale up, right? And so I think that
1: mindset and that training probably is one of the reasons why you see a lot of successful leaders
0: in the market that spent a few years at Redlock.
1: But let's get back to your current area of business. And I want to talk about the problem space uh, first before we kind of get into how your product, uh, what it does and how it works. Can you, can you kind of tell us from a mile high view, if we're weighing risk across the supply chain? How big of a problem is open source?
0: Well, simply put, 90% of your problem is open source. Here's why. You know, you can look at a lot of different reports, somewhere between 80 and 90% and growing. Percentage of your modern application code is code you don't write but borrow from the internet. Where do you borrow it? From complete strangers on the internet of open source ecosystems that are thriving in places like GitHub. And it's fantastic because it's really fostering innovation, speed to market for developers, You don't have to rebuild capabilities all the time. But also what what fascinates me, these so-called suppliers in your supply chain security, not really suppliers. You have no contracts with them. You have no legal support agreements with them. You don't pay them a dollar. And they're just good Samaritans that are providing you code as is with no warranty. Now, fundamentally, what that means is the onus is on you, the user of all that open source code. Understand those risks, evaluate those risks, and make risk-based decisions on your comfort level of using that code on critical applications. So, you know, without going too much into what endorph labs does, that was the foundational problem and why we decided to focus on this. Because this tide has shifted in the last five seven years from where ninety percent of the code was first party code that you wrote to now ninety percent of the code be code you don't write.
1: In in open source software, there's historically been a pretty um, I don't want to say fanatical but very enthusiastic supporters of open source and it's you know it's taken a little bit of a beating recently is would you say open source software has become inherently less secure over time or is it just more widely used right now
0: um I think it's a bit different honestly a open source is everywhere now it wasn't necessarily like you didn't have critical infrastructure applications using open source and, and things of that nature. Second. The pressure on the businesses to move faster, innovate. Faster means they can't block access to the open source ecosystem for their developers. That used to be the case, right? Five, seven years ago, in a regulated enterprise, you couldn't access GitHub.com. Uh, guess what? There's not a single place I could find today where you have that level of kind of rigidly blocking controls. So, open source is a catalyst for innovation. Okay. Now the problem is we've used it in this just super exciting manner with implicit trust. But what happens? The bad actors figure this out and they say, great, this is an easy way into any environment is just go get developers to use some malicious open source or go compromise known vulnerabilities. And great, now I have a path where I don't have to break through firewalls and access controls and other ways to get in. Most people have underinvested in open source security, which is why... Paul, what's really interesting to me is you are now seeing the government lead away with regulation where the industry is now trying to play catch up. Like, you don't see this very often. You've got the executive order from the White House a couple of years back that talked about open source being a national security issue. You now have, as of two weeks ago uh, or a week ago, a bill passed in the Senate already around securing open source code. And you have lots of other things around SBOM requirements and other aspects mean fed in in terms of requirements. So uh, I'm glad that to see the government really pulling the bull by its horn and saying, industry, we need to do more, because open source is not here to stay. And, um, and I think everybody needs to make the right level of investments to catch up.
1: Good, very good point. So people in, back in the day, used to describe open source as it was something that came with a an army of developers to fix security issues. And for many years, there had been a perception that open source was actually more secure than proprietary code. Now, you're, you're obviously you're you're pointing out the flaws in open source code, but you're not trying to get rid of it. You're trying to help it be used more responsibly. So, Correct. could you could you maybe help us from your your standpoint of expertise uh, in contrast, maybe compare and contrast the open source versus proprietary development approach for what kind of security flaws, or, or you know, basically basically make that compare and contrast for us.
0: Sure. Great question. Look, it's not that open source software is inherently insecure. I think when the argument for why open source should be trusted more is the code is available to everybody. Any security researcher in the world can see it. They can find things. It's great. There's transparency. On the flip side, when people think open source, you got to remember, most of the open source code on the internet that's being used today is not the one that's been created by Google, Facebook, Apple and others. It's actually a single individual that decided to do a project as a hobby, Code became something that could be reused, now it's available to all. Now you've got millions of people and literally millions of downloads a week happening on popular projects that are being maintained by somebody who spends 10 hours a week on it. It's not sustainable. The second thing is, we got to remember, nothing in this world is free. And this perspective that organizations, enterprises have when they consume and their developers are using open source it well that's open source okay well yes it is but the difference between a google and a traditional enterprise with how open source adoption works is huge at a google like place there's an army of developers that are there vetting all the open source that wants that people want to use within google they're maintaining it they're providing support and contributions back to the open source community and when these are really critical projects they're actually working them and then managing and maintaining it themselves. In a traditional enterprise, which is 98 99% of the world, that doesn't happen. Your single developer brings in this open source, hopes and prays that that person sitting in Arkansas who's working on this project as a side thing is able to keep up. And it doesn't always happen. And, you know, the the, the example I want to give you here is when Log4j happened, obviously we all still get nightmares with it, Hundreds of thousands of companies sent the maintainer of Log4J spreadsheets and questionnaires to complete about their security posture, and these people just laughed them out of the door saying, I don't owe it to you. You don't want to use my code. Don't use it. I'm not sitting for free and writing spreadsheets and responding to you. Uh, There's another one recently, uh, a project called CoreJS, which is a maintainer living in Russia. This code base runs the entire web application on the Internet, Netflix, Amazon, Google, you name it everybody's using components of this this person is pleading on the internet saying i don't have financial help please help me he went to jail for 10 months or for an accident during which 10 months there was no updates on the code yet it's foundational to our internet ecosystem something is very wrong here paul and we just need to make sure that the users and where Endor labs is focused is helping consumers of open source software do their part which is Understand what open source your developers are using today, evaluate the risks around it, and then make risk-based decisions on how, where, and if you want to consume it, and how you're going to manage that code base on a, on a going-forward basis.
1: The, those are actually really amazing stories. I think the perception of open source is it's this group of people. It's this you know this hive of all these brains together that are working to maintain it, but in a lot of cases, it's a person. And we don't, we don't really think of who that person is or their background, whether they're trustworthy or not. Some really good stories there. Log4j was obviously the worst and longest running vulnerability that I can recall. And I, I think that's a pretty, pretty easy assessment to make. Obviously, there's been a rise of DevOps. Everyone's becoming a software company, codes being uh, spread all over the place, the cloud, microservices, APIs. Is that decentralization why Log4j was so hard to handle? Like, what's your assessment of why that was so difficult for the industry?
0: Multiple reasons. First and foremost, you're letting your developers bring in whatever software you need from the Internet, and a lot of organizations weren't even cataloging or inventorying that software. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, the way the whole internet, uh, open source ecosystem works is there's this con- concept of direct dependencies and transitive dependencies. So allow me to explain this. Your developer may be bringing in packaged food. Okay, so in your developer's mind and in your inventory, you said, great, I know I use Foo. Now, Foo may itself be using as part of its development hundreds of open-source dependencies, and those open-source dependencies might be using hundreds of others. So you could end up with log4j six levels down in your code where your developers didn't even bring it in, but it's there. I call these the uninvited guests to your party. You don't have them on the RSVP list. You didn't track their kind of COVID vaccination status. They're there, and you know nothing about them. And so the first problem was just really visibility. Where do I have one for in my environment? And you know, speaking of decentralization, you got to remember, a, chart, a large enterprise has thousands, if not tens of thousands of code repositories. So you can't just go in one place and look. you got to look at thousands of different places. And so this is where most organizations spend weeks in war rooms with spreadsheets saying, please tell me if you use log4j somewhere, unsustainable. The next problem was, once you figured out where log4j is, was, am I using log4j in a manner that makes me vulnerable? In order to answer that question, you have to do code reviews to figure out if you were using the lines of code that had the vulnerability, because then you would prioritize those things getting fixed. None of the tools today for software composition analysis actually do that. That's one of the big things we have against the existing state-of-the-art capabilities in the the industry and why one of the reasons we think we're here at the Innovation Sandbox as a finalist is because we're changing that that, that technical approach to finding and discovering that. The third thing happens, okay, I have it. I'm using the vulnerable function. I need to update it. The biggest nightmare for engineers is figuring out if I update this piece of code, what else will break? Who else depends on it? And so, this just makes managing open source hard. And this is why engineers have given it a term. The term is called dependency hell. Dependency hell exists because it's a very complex web of code, which is hard to understand the impact of changes, and it's hard to understand where you're using it.
1: Quick question about the executive order. So that obviously came after solar winds and uh, all the chaotic supply chain attacks and that was in the United States. Are other countries around the, the globe following suit with that?
0: Yes, we have seen similar um, uh, regulation now emerge in the UK and now in Europe as well. Uh, so we think it's a matter of time. You know, Just like food labels became, you may put around the world for groceries, we think uh, the same will happen for software. And now obviously there's a whole host of other problems you have to solve. Once you start demanding ingredient labels on your food, then you want to actually make sure that the ingredients that go in there are good so you're not embarrassed when your customer reads them and you can trust what's in there if they're certifying organic is it really organic uh but those are the latter issues but yes uh, we think the software transparency conversation and that conversation is now starting worldwide
1: well let's talk about your product a little bit so um i assume from, you know from the broad application securities perspective you know there's Testing uh, uh, runtime dynamic testing, and then there's baking stuff in with the runtime and interactive in, into the, the application when it's deployed. I assume you're, shif- you sh- you're shifted left into the code to, for analysis. Is that true? Could you give us kind of the overview? Yeah, Paul. So um, we are. We, you know, our fundamental belief is that right when
0: the developers are forgetting what using, are investigating what open source software they should use. We need to help them in that process. We need to help them select more secure and sustainable, higher quality open source software. So that's the easiest point of intervention. We then, once they start consuming this open source, they decide I want to use it anyway. Uh, A, we allow the organization to catalog what they're using, understand, and and measure the risks associated with that, and decide at an organizational policy level, if they want to allow or disallow that open source component from coming in. Once it's in there, now it's like having a baby. You got to nurture it. You got to maintain it. You got to keep it secure. So, you know, a lot of organizations today will do this manual one-time review, which takes weeks and months sometimes for developers to wait and say, okay, you can use this open source software. And then nothing happens after that. But, you know, we have a saying here at Endor, which is open source software ages like milk, not wine. Hmm. So once it's in there, you got to make sure you're keeping it secure. You got to monitor for updates. You got to monitor for breaking changes in the application and monitor for changes in risk posture. We are constantly doing that for our customers. And then ultimately when a developer needs to make a change in that code base, you know, going back to what I was describing earlier, you want to help them maintain, update and nurture that software. Ultimately what you get as an outcome, if you have these dependency life cycle management capabilities is then you can meet these compliance objectives for the executive order and the new cybersecurity frameworks uh, producing S-bombs that are high quality and trustworthy. But for us, we think open source software needs two things. One, the scanning and detection of problems needs to be very, very accurate. And so we're fundamentally changing how you do the scanning, where rather than just understanding every open source component you use, we go many steps further to know how you use it and what lines of code within that open source packages you actually use in your application. So that gives us accuracy. And then we focus on completeness. And when I say completeness, we believe open source risks are a lot further than just license and vulnerability risks. So how do you look for leading indicators of risk that will tell you that there's a likelihood of something really becoming bad or looking for next-gen supply chain attacks also big focus for us. So combining accuracy and completeness is really the secret sauce of andor labs and doing it across the life cycle from selection to security and maintenance and updates.
1: So when you talk about selection and talk about whether open source is updated, it sounds like you're really talking about, you're almost like a, are you like a search engine keeping track of open source code across the web and and attributing who is developing it, keeping track of it, is that more where you come from?
0: That's a part of it. Where we start is on the outside. Uh, We are, basically cataloging all of the open source software that's out there we're analyzing the code we're analyzing the people behind the code we're analyzing the history of it the, these projects and really trying to bring in what i like to call a carfax report for open source so as an engineer before you use some open source component you get a carfax report and you can decide how to use it and consume that data uh, and then once you've chosen which of these components which which car to purchase using the car analogy now that car's in your garage, now we'll continue to monitor its health, its maintenance records, when it's coming to you for service. And, you know, if there's an accident, help you kind of fix the car, get it back on the road, let you know when it's time to change your tires. That's basically what we do with us, it's the life cycle of open source software.
1: That that's very cool, very interesting. So you you're almost a database of knowledge about open source developers too do you plan on releasing any kind of reports so that give us they could give us actually like insight into the broad picture of open source and who's developing it anything like that
0: you know we already started doing that paul so there was a report we released in uh, october november time frame last year where we started uh bringing producing all the insights of where the true risks are based on this uh we then based on a lot of our knowledge and understanding of this ecosystem produced last month, the top 10 open source risk report that is helping people understand what are the things you should really keep top of mind. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's an amazing data set to mine research from and really look for leading indicators of where the buck is headed as it relates to open source adoption and risk management.
1: So you've obviously been a very, very experienced and successful entrepreneur and you've You've been first, like obviously you mentioned, Redlock was very early into, well, r- really started the, the posture management. And and so now you're in AppSec, which has other players. Like what is your differentiator that you're coming in here and you're, you are you feel strong about?
0: Yeah, I think number one thing, Paul, is people are sick and tired in AppSec with the amount of vulnerability reports they get from their existing tools, and ultimately getting discredited by their engineering teams because turns out eight out of 10 of those are false positives. So the way the journey works today is you run a software composition analysis tool to scan open source for vulnerabilities. It tells you you have a half a million things wrong. You as a security team really struggle to figure out how to cut that half a million to maybe a hundred thousand, massive list still. You send those hundred thousand reported vulnerabilities to your developers. They spend the next several months going through those tickets and then one at a time coming back to you and saying, this doesn't affect me, this doesn't affect me, this doesn't affect my code. And then you're having this massive debate, politically charged debate between engineering teams and security teams. Security teams want a clean bill of health from their CA tool. And engineering teams don't want to do the work that's unnecessary. And that causes a lot of friction. So the number one thing we're solving for is really changing fundamentally the way we scan to be much more finer grained in our analysis to know pinpoint down to the line of code in open source that you've been using and know if that's affected by a vulnerability or not, and thereby be able to reduce a lot of vulnerability of course by 70 to 80%. That's one. Second piece is really helping organizations think on how to get a more complete picture of risk. Like I said, you know, there's more things than license and vulnerability compliance that are problems. And we're kind of pioneering this idea of, of looking at risk more holistically and managing that at the very onset when developers are considering use of open source software. So I would put these two things up there as the key differentiators against the incumbent uh, software composition analysis products, which are the answer to open source software.
1: The perpetual problem that people put forward when you talk to someone who does uh, static code analysis is how do you get developers to fix their code? But having been a developer for many years, looking in configuration management, seeing who wrote it, seeing like what feature was attached to bug reports that's the kind of thing that developers are interested in getting a, a list of flaws from you know outside your departments i could see this would be a very interesting data set you could present them No,
0: well, thank you we're really excited about it the feedback we've got from initial customers is phenomenal and just looking to double down do
1: you want to tell us a little bit about your your origin story yeah look with endor um you know i was facing
0: this problem firsthand at Palo Alto networks right after solar winds are leadership team and board was asking a lot of questions about how we are managing our software supply chain risks. And it was hard to produce good, credible answers. And, you know, when I looked at this problem and then, um, at the 68,000 alert problem, I talked about in the beginning. And when I asked dozens of my peers in the industry to just figure out if this is a unique problem to me, everybody was struggling with this. And, you know, right as we were starting to think about that, and I quit by all the networks. Two months later, Log4j happened, and that just was a reinforcing factor to say yes, like we really need to rethink this problem. We have far too much reliance on open source software than we want to believe, and we really need to think about risk management and security and then. And you know, we kind of embarked on that journey. I was um, blessed in that process to be able to build a phenomenal team. You know, we have this, we have this belief that because this was a core engineering problem at the roots. We wanted to bring a very diverse set of engineering talent in the company. So we had a rule of two, you couldn't hire more than two engineers from the same company for the first 15, 20 engineers. So that allowed us to bring an understanding of how different organizations do open source and dependency management as part of engineering processes. We ended up hiring seven world renowned experts and PhDs in the space of dependency management that have done some technical breakthroughs and work in academics that we then took to productize in the enterprise. And, you know, along the way, we've had over 30 CISOs personally invest in the company because they've just been so excited by our approach, mission, and vision. So all in all, we're, we've got an amazing team and amazing set of investors and supporters that are rooting for our success.
1: How can you find Endor Labs on the web?
0: Endorlabs.com, very straightforward. Come check it out and uh, there's a lot of learning content and You know, for folks that are trying to understand what are these new risks that we've been talking about for open source, check out the top 10 OSS risks report that's available under resources. Or also just play around with the interactive explorer, uh, which is just on our homepage. You'll see a link to risk explorer where you can interactively understand the new emerging risks in the open source supply chain.